The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. And let's stand and pray, and we'll be all done. I'm joking. Don't ask me stand up. I might have sit there. I'm not really done. I haven't even started. It's been a while since I've been here teaching, so you didn't even know what to believe, right? Wednesday nights for me, I haven't been here in a while, but uh, get used to it. Hey, uh, good to see you guys here tonight. Um, I have a little bit of a confession to make before. As soon as I'm done, I'm going to go right out that door and out of here because I have been like on death's door with a terrible flu. And I thought it was all over. I was done, ready to be back to work this morning and woke up this morning with a fever again. So, um... Wrestled through with the help of an insane, I've been eating Advil like chiclets just um, all day long, and it helps. I'm, I think that's good for your kidneys, isn't that what they tell you? Something like that. So, um, so I've been doing that, and so we'll make it through, um, but I'm not going to be like mingling and stuff, and so please don't be offended by that. Um, I just don't want to get anyone sick. You do not. Please take your flu shots, all of you. Trust me. Like they're telling us the flu vaccine. Oregon flu season is supposed to be the worst that it's been in like forever, and apparently the vaccine they have right now matches all the strains that are going through Oregon right now. Trust me, you don't want this. Amen? So grab your Bibles, if you haven't done it already, and turn to the book of Nehemiah. The book of what? Say it. It's not Nehemiah. Anyone stunned already? It's not Nehemiah. Um, It's only Nehemiah because we're American. Um, but technically it's Nehemiah, um, but I will confess I'll probably slip up at times as well. You guys like those videos, the Bible Project videos that we see from time to time? Just so you know, they're all available on YouTube. Um, the guy who is behind that is one of the professors up at Western Seminary where I study. He's just a brilliant teacher up there named Tim Mackey, and they put all that together. And uh, not to let too much of a secret for it, but we're considering using some of their work even with our group stuff in the year to come. They have some phenomenal material, so feel free to check those out on YouTube anytime you want. It's all free material. Um, But I wanted to show that with you guys today because last week you covered the book of Ezra, and then this week we're in the book of Nehemiah. And if you caught it at the beginning, I know we're still kind of mangling a little bit, but um, it's actually pretty strongly believed now that it was never intended that those two books actually be separated. That was done somewhere along the line in human history. In fact, at one point they believed it was actually connected to Chronicles, but that's not the case. And so there's a reason that it's separate. Um, But Nehemiah is tied to Ezra for a purpose. As you saw in the video, there's themes that are common that run through some of them. And so it, it is tied together for a purpose. The narrative itself of Nehemiah um, and Ezra as well, but we're going to focus tonight specifically on Nehemiah because um, the, the narrative there, there's such, there really is such hope at the beginning of all this. If you take that step back and you think about everything that's been happening in the history of Israel up to this point, there is no reason for anything but optimism. I mean, we, we've already tracked even recently through the story of the monarchy, where they had King David and King Samuel, and you saw how that all drifted, and then the nations split into two different kingdoms, and you had the kings of one and the kings of other, and we saw how there were good kings and bad kings, but overall the trajectory of both lands was heading south in a big way. And then we saw just the horror, the the catastrophe, the tragedy of the fact that that each each land was carried off into captivity, as had been foretold back in Deuteronomy chapter 29. 
So, so you have God's people who have been taken to their land and now suddenly this fracture's happened and now they're not just God's nation unified anymore, they're separate and then suddenly they're taken off. Like, like not just insignificant, but gone. Like don't let that, don't, don't forget about that. I mean, how many times in our history have we seen anywhere in the world nations that were in existence, that were removed and then came back? I mean, that's unbelievable, honestly. Um, but that's the case in each of those. We've seen this happen. We saw the return of some in 516 BC to rebuild the temple. That's the story of Ezra. And now here in Nehemiah, we have around 445 BC, we have the return of some others for the specific purpose of rebuilding the walls. Now, the purpose of what we're doing here on Wednesday nights, the reason that this series is going on, this Old Testament overview um, it, it's not just to teach the book so that you learn the book. What we're really trying to do is teach the themes and, and, and maybe the lenses through which you might go read the book on your own. I mean, it would be impossible for us, as you know, for any of these books to sit up here and teach through the entire book in 45 minutes. We just can't possibly do that. Um, the idea of this series is to help you guys and, and even... Honestly, uh, I think Sam and Jeremy and those who have taught would agree um, to refresh for ourselves as well what these books are about and, and to be able to go back and read them on our own. So, so I'm encouraging you after we do this, like this week, man, spend some time in this book. Like go read this for yourself with some of these filters in play as you have those things kind of filed away and then see what the Lord speaks through you through those things. And so with that being the case... Um, as I was kind of thinking through this and approaching the book, um, I'll be quite honest with you. I sort of had the filter already in mind. This is how we're going to approach the book of Nehemiah uh, before I'd ever even sat down to do an ounce of studying for this. And the, the reason that I did is because it's the framework that had been given me for years and years and years and years and years. It's also the framework by which I have almost always seen the book of Nehemiah um, looked at through. And that's usually through the framework of leadership. Almost every time that I've ever heard anyone teach about Nehemiah or even Christian leadership conferences, these two are brought together. Um, Nehemiah is upheld as this example of this just ferocious man of God who, who exhibits this action and this demeanor, but also this tendency to continue to lean on the Lord the whole way. He exhibits faith in his prayer life, but action even in his muscle. I mean, like all of these things seem to come into one. And Nehemiah is upheld as, as this guy who is like, this is the guy that we look to. And so very often, um, even in pastoral training, people will tell you, man, you need to read the book of Nehemiah so that as you're reading this book, you learn what it looks like to be a leader on God's agenda. And so what I'm going to do is actually go through a few of those things here for you today and look at them and try to see, um, is this the theme that's appearing as we go through the book of Nehemiah? Is this what this book's about and what is it that we can learn from some of these things? And that does not mean that these are lessons that only apply to someone who wants to be a pastor and so the rest of us can check out. Um, I, I think there's areas of leadership that we can be involved in in any area of our life. If, if, you're, if you're a stay-at-home mom with your kids, your leadership is you're leading these kids. If you're a teacher in school, your leadership. If you're in the workplace and you have people around you, like there's, there's all sorts of forms of leadership. It does not uh, have to resolve on, if you will, pastoral leadership or national leadership or any of those sorts of things. That makes sense? 
Um, so, so here's what I'm going to do. The narrative of the book we've sort of seen, even in the video. And if, if you're kind of sleeping through some of that or getting fascinated by the drawings that come out, the idea is Nehemiah gets word that the walls around the city of Jerusalem are broken down and he's, he's wounded by that news. He's moved by that news. And so he spends time praying and fasting and he goes before the king. He was the cupbearer for the king, so he had a special access to him. Goes before the king, tells him what's going on, and, and the king is incredibly generous, which we'll get to in a minute, and, and commissions him to go and to get materials together, to scout out the work, to lead a group of people there, to do the work, and to begin rebuilding the walls um, of the city that they had been captured out of and brought out from. And so he goes about doing that, and then as you know, as we saw, opposition comes in waves. There's tons of opposition that comes, but he's faithful, and they work hard, and they've got one another's back. And so they persevere through all of that, and then this national kind of spiritual reform is set into place. There's the reading of the word publicly. There's repentance by the leaders. There's oaths taken by the people. There's all of these things that take place. And you see, you, you, you kind of look at this whole thing as like Israel's back. That's kind of the way it's, it feels until that chapter 13 that we're just going to forget about until we get to the very end, right? So that's the idea. So when you're looking through this, if someone was reading through the book of Nehemiah, what are the things they might learn as they're reading through here? They're, if they're thinking through this lens of leadership, uh, the first thing that comes up as you're reading in Nehemiah is, and not Nehemiah, it's what? Nehemiah. I told you I'd slip. Nehemiah chapter 1, we see first of all that godly leaders pray. And we see this right away in verse 4. Nehemiah says, As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned and we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. But remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. To the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So we see here right off the bat that Nehemiah has this passion to go deal with rebuild the city walls. And if you wonder why is it so much of a big deal, the city walls, well, the city walls in that day were actually more important than even the army that you had. Um, because you were continually, 24-7, vulnerable, any city at that time that didn't have walls. Any opposing army, band of marauders, anything like that coming by could just sweep in, have its way with people in the city, carry people away, whatever the case may be. We actually see this parallel really well or, or exemplified. Proverbs 25, 28. In Proverbs 25, 28, it speaks about a man who has no self-control. 
And the word actually says this, a man without self-control is like a city without walls, broken into and left without. So the idea is this, if a guy has no self-control, any passing temptation that comes his way, he's liable to chase it. If he doesn't have any ability to ground himself and say, these are my boundaries, these are my principles, these are my morals, this is how I honor God, and anything that comes by can sweep him off and say, oh, I'll I'll chase after that, I'll chase after that, because his eyes aren't set upon who God has him to be. And the Bible compares that to a city without walls. You have nothing protecting you. You have nothing honing you in. In the same way that the word of God is that which provides a boundary for us. The walls of the city not being there. You're vulnerable to anything that can come by and take you away. So it's really important for them in that day to have walls built. And so Nehemiah hears about this and he's completely broken down about it. And the first thing he does is he spends days. It actually says when I, verse four says, as, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. Young people, that's not like the slang that we use now that just means uh, for a while. Like, oh, for days. Like that's not what that means. Like for days, this man was on his knees. For days, this man is fasting and praying and begging God. That is a powerful example of where leadership even begins because any leader within the kingdom of God is still just an undership. And so you can't effectively lead God's people in the way that God has his people going if you're not actually in contact with the one who is the true shepherd. And so Nehemiah, there's, there's all sorts of things that you can look up and read about where they'll break down his prayer and use it as models for different types of prayer. I, I do think there's some things about the way Nehemiah prays that are incredibly encouraging. For example, I love how he prays to God almost as if he needed or was trying to remind God of God's promises. I think it's a great thing. I think God encourages such a thing. I mean, first of all, it shows that Nehemiah knew God's word, right? He knew that God had told Moses, hey, your people are going to rebel. They're going to scatter. But if they'll just return to worship, if they'll just return to me, I'll gather them back together. And he knew this. And so there's a sense in which his prayer is not even based on just this is what I really want. He's saying this is in accordance with your word, God. And so whether it be promises of God or one of the things that I do often is praying through the Psalms. Finding maybe if you're in a time where you're just like, man, I'm feeling kind of desperate right now. I'm feeling kind of alone. I feel like I'm not close with the Lord like I used to be. And then going and finding those Psalms and finding that man, David felt the same way. And these are some of the things that he said to the Lord and just praying those words. You're you're not just praying like joining in with David and his emotions and what he's feeling, but you're still bringing the very word of God to bear even in your prayer life. It's a good discipline, I think, to be a part of. And he's, he also prays, by the way, um, not just in the four days thing. Like now I've prayed up. I don't need to pray anymore. I'm going to go to work. Because look what happens actually in chapter two. If we can skip ahead just a little while. He goes before the king. And he's there talking to the king. And he has these questions. And I totally lost the place. It's in two verse four. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? And he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king. Now that, that doesn't mean... That Nehemiah's like, oh, king, I have a request. Yes, what is it? What do you want? Just a moment. Dear Heavenly Father. <laughs> like, that's not, that's not what that means. Um, this might be something more akin to maybe the kind of thing that Paul would talk about when he says, pray without ceasing. 
That there's a sense in which he has this continuing, ongoing, unending conversation going on with God. And I'm telling you, that can be such a beneficial thing. It's hard. It's hard in our flesh to do those types of things. But the Lord works in those things. I've, I've been in counseling situations before where I've had a couple sitting in front of me and one saying, this, this, it's all him, it's all him. And then on the other side, it's, no, it's all her. And you're, you're listening and you're like, oh, it is all him. She's totally right. Let's just, we need to skewer this guy. And then he starts to talk and you're like, this girl's out of her mind. This guy is just a godly man. What is wrong with her? And then it goes back and forth. And you can be sitting there listening to this stuff. But I, I don't have a clue what to do with any of this. There's been so many times in situations where like that where I'm, I'm listening to what's going on. And I'm, I have almost like this little internal side dialogue going on with the Lord in that moment where I'm like, it, it's simple. God, you got to give me something. Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't see the situation. I have no idea where to go with any of this. God, I'm begging you, give me something. And it's amazing how many times through that, that you just kind of become tuned into like some of the things that are going on. So Nehemiah is a great example of a leader because this is a man who is constantly in communication with God. Constantly in communication with God. A man of absolute prayer, praying without ceasing. I think it's a great example. But he doesn't just pray. The second thing you see when you move into chapter 2 is you see that godly leaders act. Because he comes before the king. We started in verse 4. Verse 5, I said to the king, if it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in your sight, that you would send me to Judah, the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And here's what I love about this. Nehemiah is not the kind of guy that sees a need, is moved by the need, he's going to pray for the need, and then hope someone goes and does something. That's not him. He's like, God showed me. God revealed this to me. God has moved my heart. God has made this important to me. And I'm, I'm assuming this is something God has called me to. And so this guy goes from, this is a cush position, an honorable position. And he's like, send me, send me. And with the kind of oppression that they're going to deal with, the kind of uh, uh, persecution and pushback they're going to get, you don't, you don't think he knew about this? He knew the stories from Ezra. He knew some of these kind of things that had happened in the people that had gone before them as well. He knew about some of the warring factions that were going to be in the area. He knew this was going to be difficult. And not too many people tend to want to leave, if you will, high-rise cush positions so they can go grab bricks and mortar. And yet this is what he's doing. He is a spiritual godly man that's like, I see this need. I'm going to pray about this, but I'm going to get involved. I'm going to actually go, um, you might say, incarnate myself into that situation. Because that was the same situation, right? That Jesus sees our need. The Lord saw our need. He knew. Even the Psalms talk about how he pities us as a father pities his children. He knew our weakness and that he didn't just, God didn't just send provision. He sent himself as provision for our need as well. And so if that's what our actual great shepherd does, then how much more should we as under shepherds do the same way? And by the way, this is a total side note that I was thinking about even as we were watching the video right there. You ever wonder, why is that? Why is this king so generous? Like, why is this the group of people that they essentially kidnapped took over, drugged them out of their land, took them off into this place into captivity. And, and now suddenly this King Artaxerxes is just like, 
yeah, you know, um, go. In fact, let, let me get you some supplies together and let's get you like a, an armed guards around you to help you out a little bit on the way. You ever wonder why he's so generous? Plagues. What's that? Plagues. Legs? Plagues. Plagues. <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, I, have an, I have another theory. <laughs> um, this, consider this teaser for next week's, right? So this king's name is Artaxerxes. He had a dad. You know what his dad's name was? Xerxes. Xerxes took a wife. Anyone know what Xerxes' wife's name was? Esther. Esther. The woman who had actually stepped up and saved the people of Israel. Now we don't know. That does not mean this is Esther's kid. Um, He had lots of wives. But it is generally believed by a lot of people. And it's almost hard to not except that as fact that there was some sort of interactions, whether it's passed through the dad or through Esther, but there does seem to be this incredible sympathy that's taking place. And you see, as you're going to study when we get into the book of Esther, the fact that Esther stood didn't just preserve that one specific generation, but it had implications for years and years and years and generations and generations to come. But that's just a teaser. So godly leaders act, but godly leaders also face opposition. And that's chapter four, which is a bulk of the midsection here of Nehemiah. <coughs> Excuse me. Godly leaders face opposition. This is an absolute guarantee. When you choose to step out and take on a work that the Lord has put before you, something you know that God has called you to do, you can absolutely bank on the fact that somewhere along the line, opposition is going to come. That is just a rule of life. And for those that are in positions specifically of, I would say, spiritual leadership, we might say, I would say the attacks there are probably going to come with a little bit more force, a little bit more oomph. Because you take down the head and the people scatter. It tends to be the case. It's, it's the way we approach even fighting terrorism, right? Take out Osama, take out the leaders, take, you know, that kind of a thing. This is, this is just kind of leadership 101. And so it is an absolute given. And Nehemiah is not above that. So in verse chapter 4, verse 1, we see, Now when Sanballat heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, Yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up it, he will break down their stone wall. So the first thing that comes his way is just ridicule, mocking, words. Which words don't hurt, right? What's the, what's the phrase? Um, Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that true? Words hurt, man. We wish that was true. But words hurt. You ever been in that moment, the words come, and maybe you have that snappy reply or whatever it is, or you even have a reason for, oh, these guys, well, they're just pagan Samaritan army. Of course they're scared. God's rebuilding his city. And then you walk away, and those words just keep going round and round and round. Big old jerks making fun of me, jeering me. You should see his beard, that moron. And it just, it can can pollute even your soul as that stuff comes. But it's going to happen. It's going to happen. 
Interesting how Jesus even spoke to his disciples, right? And he was seemingly warning them about this very same thing. He's like, hey, when they reject you, it's not about you. It's about me. He didn't say if. <laughs> They're going to reject you. You're going to go through hard times. But you just got to know, man, it's not about you. It's about me. Because we're not warring against people. It's principalities and powers. It's a spiritual battle that's going on. And we see this um, even with this little boy that we've adopted. That my wife and I have had so many talks about this so many times in some of the wars and battles that we're dealing with with him. It's amazing how many times the strongest fits will come for her on Sunday morning when she's getting ready for church and I'm not there because I'm here getting ready for service. So I doubt in my mind there is an absolute spiritual battle going on for that kid's soul and Satan's tent. He was in a really easy to keep away from Jesus place. Not so much anymore. Anyway. That's what I was talking about, right? Words. Words are harsh. The next one, verse 7. I told you guys, man, I want so many meds right now. Verse 7. Wait till you see my application. It's going to be hilarious. Kidding. Verse 7. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ash, Ashdodites, by the way, there are people that wouldn't normally even get along in that region that are getting along just fine as long as they're all against God's people. That's pretty common. But... So these guys heard the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, and they were angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. And in Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing and there is too much rubble. We can actually stop right there for that one. The next one is just anger and war. So it moves from words, then when the words don't seem to have effect, tends to be that if, well, our words aren't working, and that only just makes us matter. And so things start to spin and spin and spin, and now it goes just from name-calling to full-on battle. And so there's people that are like gathering together armies to want to go and attack him. And then in verse 10, we see the last one, that there's opposition through discouragement and fear. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. And by ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. You must return to us. So there's this discouragement. Man, they're, they're going to be all over us. There's other Jews who aren't involved in the building of the wall. They're like, you guys are crazy. You're going to get killed out here. You are so outnumbered. You need to just come back with us. And there's this internal turmoil and struggle that's going on with all of these guys. And it, you would almost look at it like there seems to be almost a progression. Like first it's words, and then it's war, and then, oh, we drop back down a little bit. It's not quite so bad because it's discouragement. But let me remind you, what kept the people of Israel out of the promised land the first time? It was discouragement and fear. It was unbelief. This isn't what God's really going to give us. And they died in the desert and didn't enter into the promised land because they didn't believe. And so much worse than violent opposition, much worse than name calling, is when someone in their own spirit is battling discouragement and fear. So this is what's going on. And then Nehemiah handles it brilliantly, it seems, in verse 13. It says, so the lowest parts of space behind the wall and open places... I stationed the people by their clans with swords and spears. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and officials, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome to fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us 
and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall to work. And from that day, half servants worked on construction and half held shields, spears, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. And the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and officials and the rest of the people, the work, <clears throat> excuse me, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from each other. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there and our God will fight for us. And so we labored at work. Half of them held spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And so you can see this idea where here he is handling, he's able to manage things and all of this. But the thing that I want to point out that's really interesting about this is the thing he's pointing them to over and over is back to the Lord. And so for you that when you're in leadership, when that opposition comes, whatever form it takes and whatever form of leadership that you're in, it is strongly encouraged that we follow the example of Nehemiah and allow opposition to push you into the Lord. Because again, we aren't wrestling people. We, we're wrestling principalities and powers and Satan wants to separate you from God. That's his whole point. He wants you to cower in fear, fold up and, and just go away. And so when that opposition comes, we've got to allow that. And sometimes that's when God can use it in the most beautiful ways to push you into him. To remind you why you're doing this in the first place. To remind you who your strength is, who your protection is, who you're actually seeking to please in the end. And I can tell you guys, like for me, even in the leadership at this specific church, there have been many dark nights of the soul where angry emails or people leaving that I was close to or things like that have come. And I've found myself fighting that kind of discouragement over and over and over. And every single time, and it's ended up sweet because the Lord has just brought us back to him. Just brought us back to him. So leaders, let yourself be pushed by opposition into the Lord. It is a safe place to be. It's a safe place to be. And a little side note you can throw out there, honestly, and we don't have time to develop this, but if you're not being opposed, if you're not being opposed anywhere, you might check where you're leading. And Jesus was pretty clear. In this world, you will have trouble. He was really clear. Following Jesus meant inviting opposition in the world around you. And sometimes if we don't have any of that opposition anywhere in our life and everything is smooth sailing, we might be sailing in the wrong direction. Amen? That's not a fun one to talk about, is it? <laughs> yes, we want opposition. <laughs> but I've said it the other way before. Sometimes like if we're not suffering, go fix that. Go, go find a place. Go figure that out. But that's another time. You just want, you're just sick, Jeff. Shut up and move on. Okay, chapter five, we see that godly leaders care. Check this out. There was another great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. Where, where's our clock? Is that right? Uh, okay, so I'm not going to read this. I'll paraphrase. Chapter 5, Nehemiah comes to find out that there's people who are mortgaging some of their land to other people within the nation of Israel who are being charged interest as well in order just to survive and eat. So you have this situation where the rich people here are getting richer. The poor people here are getting poorer. And Nehemiah himself, he, he comes and he finds out about this. And he says in verse 6, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And I took counsel myself. He goes to the nobles and officials. You are exacting interest each from his brother. 
And so I held a great assembly, and he tells them, and these are the guys that we came back. He says in verse 8, we've brought, these are the people God brought back from the nations. We were enslaved together. And, and now you're going to be doing this, verse 8. The thing that you're doing, is, or verse 9, the thing you're doing is not good. You, ought you not to walk in the fear of God to prevent the taunts of the nations? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. And he tells them, he finds out these people are suffering and their own brothers and sisters, their own neighbors in this cause are going, well, I'll help you out. It's going to cost you. And so all of this is going on. And he's like, guys, don't you get it? Like, I'm giving money away. I'm giving grain away. My servants are giving money and grain away. And you guys are looking at an opportunity to make some money? And he's super upset about this. He even goes on in verse 13 and says, I also shook out the fold of my garment and I said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen. The idea here is you ever take like your backpack or your jacket or something like that. and Maybe the arms are all in. So you got to fluff it out like that before you hang it out and all the stuff in your pocket starts to fall out. This is what he's doing. He's taking off his jacket and he's shaking around and anything in the pockets is just falling out all over the place. And he's saying, if you continue to do this to your brothers, then may you be shaken out of the very pockets of God. It's a pretty strong thing, actually. May you lose your house and home and place in the kingdom of God if you keep taking care, taking advantage of your brothers. But he is a very sympathetic man. Empathy Generosity, these are absolute necessities of godly leaders. And you can't be a godly leader and not have empathy for the struggles of other people. How can you read the teachings of Jesus and not see how empathetic he was to the people that were around him? And then the many, many times that he took time out of himself. And he could have said, this isn't the mission that I'm here for. But then he would even use these things to point to the mission that he was there. But he cared about the needs of the people. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He was moved by the difficulties that are there. He was absolutely moved by those things. And self-sacrifice, excuse me, self-sacrificing towards those things. I mean, Nehemiah's own servants are giving money away to people who have them and looking out for the cares of one another. So godly leaders, are they see the needs of people. They're moved by them and want to act by them. Chapter 8, we go on to see, and I'm going to have to be really quick so that I can make it to my conclusion. As you're going on to chapter 8, you see that godly leaders turn people to God's word. Ezra is brought in, and Ezra begins to read the word from sunup till noon. So for a quarter of the day, Ezra's there just reading the word, and the people are standing as, he's, as it's being read. No more will you find any sympathy in me when we say, let's stand for the reading of God's word on Sunday mornings and, oh, it's 830, whatever. No, they stood all day listening to the word of God read. They stood all day listening to it. And the, the beauty, the beauty of this is that he then brings in these Levites. He brings these people around and he has them kind of mixed in among the people. And then they're sort of teaching what's being said and making sure that everyone there can understand it. And there's this new emphasis that seems to take place with regards to the word of God. So, so Nehemiah is not just leading people to his decrees. As leader, as governor, he's not just going, here's what I have to say. Here's what I have to say. Here's what I have to say. But he's leading them back consistently. Over and over. 
to the word of God. And, and the beautiful thing is check out their response in verse six of chapter eight. And Ezra blessed the Lord. He's at the end of his reading. He blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And then they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And you know, I was reading this. And it's kind of hard not to read some of this story with some sort of, you know, sense of what we're doing right now as a nation. It's kind of hard not to. And, and I'm, I'm picturing all these people as the word of God is being read and this is all going out. And people are responding with their hands lifted up and this cheer. And, and I just couldn't help but wonder, what, what are the words that get us fired up? Is it just the political rallies? It, or the celebrities that, that you want to hear from, or uh, the football games, or the things like that. The response of the people of God when they heard the word of God was joy. And, she, and actually, Nehemiah forbids them to not be joyful, which I think is just awesome. He's like, new rule, you can be sad. <laughs> he does, look, verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught all and said, excuse me, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now, here's my guess. My guess is, as the word of God is being read, they're hearing over and over and over. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. We didn't do that. We should have known that. We should have known this. We should have known all of these things. It is not a shocker that we're in this situation. How could we have gotten to this point? Hold on to that for a moment. So godly leaders turn people to God's word. Then here's the beautiful thing. Godly leaders confess their sins. Nehemiah chapter 9, I had planned to read almost all of it because there's this, um, this is your homework, read it tonight. But from verse 5 through verse 37 is this incredible prayer. And I'll paraphrase it for you. We don't, we don't know that this is Nehemiah. We don't know if this is Ezra. We don't know who it is that's actually making this prayer. But before the assembly of the people, this is what happens. The reading of the word is going forth and they're hearing all of these things and they're tempted to grieve. And then they're being told, no, don't you get it? God is for you. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice. And in that, they're like, how could we blow it so much? Yet he's for us and we're to find joy. And the result of all of that was repentance. They're completely aware of where they've blown it. They're completely aware that they have blown this over and over and over. And so their response is repentance, not just the people, but the leaders as well. And so the prayer of the leader seems to follow this, this same thing. As you read through it, you'll see he's talking about, Lord, you alone are the one who has called us to be holy. You're the one who has called us out of it. He talks about Abraham. You called us separate from the rest of the world. You called us to be your people. And it seems to be that he's probably praying the very scriptures that he heard to some degree. Or a summary or a along those lines, if you will. He's, he's praying with regards to the very history of their people. And how they have failed and failed and failed. And we did not honor you. We were not separate and holy. We abandoned you. We chased after other gods. And there's this consistent repentance there. And you say, what does this have to do with godly leadership? I'll, let me tell you something. Several years ago, and this person doesn't attend here anymore. So I can now finally talk about this story. 
They actually, they haven't been here for a while, so don't try to figure it out. It doesn't matter. But we were several, several years ago, probably like two years in, we were going through um, some leadership development here at the church. We were realizing we needed to raise up a few more elders, and so uh, we took a shot at it. And, and one of the things that we did is we, we had this form that we gave to each of these different men that we had invited to apply to be elders at Heritage. And one of the questions on that form um, dealt with them themselves and their sin. Just like, you know, your confession of sin, what are the things that you struggle with? It, it, it even had a question about, you know, sexual history or do you struggle with sexual sin and things like this. And there was this one guy in particular that pulled me aside on a Wednesday night similar to this, pulled me aside out in the parking lot right out here. And he, uh, he said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? I was like, yeah. And we went out there and he um, gave me back the questionnaire, but like this, like he put it on my chest, if you will. And he goes, I'm not doing this. And I was like, I, I thought you wanted to be an elder. Like, what, what's going on? And his issue was, he goes, my issue of sin is between me and God. And I don't repent before anyone else. I don't need to talk about any of my history with any of that kind of stuff with anyone else. It's just between me and God. And so if that's what it takes to be an elder here, I'm not going to do it. And so I said, okay. And here's why. What we need are not perfect leaders. There's only one. He left. He's coming back. There are no perfect leaders. What we need are leaders who will show how dependent they are on the goodness of God instead of constantly trying to flaunt their own goodness. That's what we need. Because the whole point of what we're doing is pointing people to the gospel, which declares right off the bat that we aren't good enough. So, so many times in spiritual leadership, we'll put people up on this pedestal, we'll hide everything else and put this portrayal. It's, it's considered, um, or it's referred to as the holy man syndrome. Like this is the holy guy who has everything figured out, never struggles with nothing, never deals with anything. Everybody be like him. Who can do that? And here's what's really going on behind the scenes. He's just as filthy a sinner as anyone else in the room. He just hides it really well. But now, not only are the other people in the room struggling with their own sin, now they got a whole new layer of guilt to live with because they're not as holy as him. When he was never supposed to be the model in the first place. He's an under-shepherd. He's just a hireling. He's a slave who exists to point the other people to Jesus. And so we make a point of that here, even among our elders, of talking about those sorts of things. Um, our, our interviews with those who want to be in spiritual leadership here, we talk honestly and openly. I talk sometimes maybe a little too honestly and openly from the stage, my wife might tell you. But listen, we're not trying to pretend that we have it all together. I told someone early on when I was about to become a lead pastor, I was like, look, man, um, I'm not perfect by a long stretch. I also don't keep secrets well, and I'm way too social to try. So I should just be straight up to begin with. Otherwise, people are just going to be mad later on. Like, let's just do it now. At least when I mess up down the road, I'll be like, well, I, I told you. <laughs> but look, what we need are leaders who instead of taunting their own goodness, will lean on and point to the goodness of God. That will make heritage or America great again, wouldn't it? Imagine that. Imagine that. Instead of having to spin all of our failures, instead of having to, oh, well, I'm this, and that's the real bad one over there, and, and well, what I really meant was trying to spin all those things, 
If our leaders were those that are like, I'm weak and, and I fail, but I'm just doing the best that I can to depend on God and he's been really good to me and I would, oh, give me that guy, right? Being in leadership does not mean you figured everything out and you're perfect. I used to think that forever. It's not true. It means you're leaning on God more now than you ever have before in your life. And that's what we need more of. Heritage men, especially in this room. We're not good at that. We want to keep a little more private. You ladies are really good at this kind of stuff because you like to talk. That helps. But look, repent in front of your kids. Tell them you're sorry. Repent to one another. Be honest about the stuff that you struggle with and what your failings are. But point to the one who gives you strength and can keep you from stumbling. Amen? So godly leaders confess sin. And there's, there's other things again, but, but we see this theme continue on. And i got to close this out really quickly. So chapter 10 goes on after all this. There's this, this repentance that happens in chapter 9. And then chapter 10 seems to be sort of the high point as it goes into here. Because the people begin to take oaths. They've heard the word of God taught. They've entered into repentance over the failures that they had with regards to that word. And now they're making these oaths. We will not be like this again. So they say, we will not take foreign wives, which sounds racist, right? <laughs> we will not take any form of, that's not what it means. The idea was, remember, God is taking, in this case, a national people. And he's calling them away from all the other nations of the world. He wants them to be separate. And he knows, and history has proven for them. That if they are intermarrying with these other pagan nations, it's going to cause them to chase after these other idols. Okay, so for us, this principle is still at play. Though, that does not mean we're now not allowed to marry people outside of national boundaries. The way it plays out for us now, Jesus said, don't be unequally yoked. So the idea is not about marrying outside of a nationalistic boundary. We're talking about, remember, religion was part of your core national identity at the time. So he's saying, don't, don't marry someone who's not a Christian because you're going to have competing value systems within the same home. So he, these people are making pledges. We won't take foreign wives. We're not going to do this. We won't shop or sell on the Sabbath. And everything seems amazing. And so if, if Nehemiah stopped after, say, 11, when the new leaders in Jerusalem come in, and then 12, the priests and the Levites come in, and the service of the temple begins, if Nehemiah stopped right there, um, it would be like, of course, this is the guy to uphold as the example of what godly leadership looks like. He'd be a fantastic example of that, right? And so here's my question. Then. Having spent all this time talking about this, I'm going to frustrate you a little bit. It, should we read Nehemiah as a book about leadership? I mean, it seems pretty clear all the way through. There's all sorts of issues or, or lessons on leadership. But is that what it's really about? Let me ask you, let's, let me step back a little bit. Is the Bible reliable, yes or no? Yes. yes. Okay, you, you should say, well, reliable for what? Is actually the more accurate answer. Because if you said, is the Bible reliable for helping me understand how to glorify God? The answer to that would be obviously be what? Yes. But is the Bible reliable for telling me exactly what I should invest in tomorrow so that my family is financially secure two years from now? No, obviously so purpose always is uh, underguards uh, reliability. If you're saying is something reliable, purpose comes into play. FedEx is reliable for my packages. They are not reliable to bring me breakfast in the morning because they don't intend to. 
That's not their purpose. It's not what they're trying to do. So we have to ask ourselves then, what is the purpose of the Bible? What is the purpose of the book of Nehemiah? Is it about leadership? Do you want to know something interesting? The New Testament never mentions anything in Nehemiah or Ezra. Nothing. Not its reformers. Nothing gets mentioned in the entire New Testament. So you go, what was the purpose of that? Why is that? And I mean, if Nehemiah is considered like this example of godly leadership, then chapter 13 is problematic. You saw the end of the video, right? He sort of loses it. He comes back and all the reforms that have been implemented, both in his day and in Ezra's stuff, it's all falling apart. People are intermarrying again. You've got all these different things happening. They're breaking the Torah. They're breaking the commandments. They're working on the Sabbath. The law or the walls they spent all this time building are being disrespected. So it would seem as if, man, if he's such a great leader, even the very initiatives he put into place didn't even make it more than a couple of years. Like, what do you mean? Like, how is that the case? And then, not to mention the fact that when he finds out about these things, one of his ways of dealing with it, he's rounding people up and physically beating them up, pulling out their hair. That's in the text. In verse 23 and 25 of Nehemiah chapter 13, it says, In those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half the children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And just so you know, he might be talking about the wives and children. So you go, well, every leader has his flaws, <laughs> right? I mean, is that the case right here? Is this what it tends to be? I saw, I heard a quote in a lecture by uh, Art Lazerdi, another one of my professors up at Western Seminary last week. And it has just run around and round and round in my mind ever since. And it, it seems applicable here. He said this, in making the Bible speak where it is silent, Many evangelicals have subsequently silenced the Bible where it actually speaks. In making it speak about everything, we have, in effect, neutralized it from speaking about anything. So here's what he's saying. If we make the Bible the guidebook for all of life, everything you need to know about anything, what, what do we need? Well, the Bible talks about parenting. You know, if you base every bit of your parenting advice specifically on what comes out of the Bible, you're going to find yourself with a lot of questions. It doesn't cover everything. There's a lot of things the Bible doesn't speak about. That the Bible never intends to speak in depth about all of those sorts of things. And what he's saying is, is when we take the Bible and apply it to every political arena, every social issue, all of these different kind of things, oh yeah, there can be effect from that. I mean, is there leadership stuff in Nehemiah? Absolutely, there's beneficial stuff. But when we make the Bible the ultimate authority on all of these things, we are watering down the intended purpose of what the Bible really is here to do. And the Bible's not a leadership book. Nehemiah is not a leadership book. We can learn leadership stuff from it, but that's not the purpose of the Bible. The Bible, this is my uh, professor went on to say this, this same thing. The Bible's ultimate purpose and reliability is grounded in the fact that from cover to cover, it relentlessly points to Jesus. The Bible is unashamedly Christian. It's a hymn book. Not why, but hymn book. And the idea of it is this. When you're reading Nehemiah, if we were to say, 
Nehemiah is a really profitable book for leadership, which it is. But anyone who doesn't feel like they're in a position of Christian leadership might have a hard time even desiring to read such a thing. And even at that, it's not the point. The Bible, from cover to cover, is one story and one theme. No matter what book it's in, it's one story and one theme. And that theme is Jesus Christ. And as we see in these stories, what do, you, what do we learn about those things? We see that, so where is our true security? Did these walls protect Israel? Have you been lately? No. Their security wasn't in the walls. Was it in social reform? Absolutely not. How godly, how spiritually or godly a nation is Israel now? Yet, think of it this way. The social and spiritual reform that Ezra and Nehemiah put into place in that day do you realize that was the basis framework for the spiritual condition of the people of Israel in Jesus' day? Because this is the end. Nehemiah is the end of Old Testament narrative. Now, the Bible's written so out of order, or arranged, I should say, so out of order in so many ways. But you don't get any more stories about anything in the Bible until Matthew. So no more stories. So we see this reform is put in and we see this emphasis on the ceremonies and on the Torah and all, all these kinds of things. And so did that work out? Is that the security that Israel needed to bring them back to their greatness? It led them into sin and pride and so far away from God that Jesus is constantly calling out the spiritual leaders and the Levites in this day. So we can't, we can't go, but, but still it was the best, it was the best book about leadership. That's not the point. The point, as the video showed us earlier, in Ezra and in Nehemiah, we see these weird endings that, like, man, everything didn't just kind of quite come together the way they wanted. It's sort of that, but it seems to sort of point forward to something else that's much more important. It, it's much more eternal. The book of Nehemiah points us to Jesus. To say there's a, there's a leader to come. There's a reformer to come. There's one who's going to be able to do all of these things. There's one who's not going to build walls to separate from the rest of the world. That's going to call people from all tribes and all nations together. There's one to come. And that God is sovereign. That even in this thing, that this, again, this is a nation that was reborn after being taken off of its land. It's an incredible miracle of a story in that case. And then speaking of reborn, that the way to social change is not laws. Reiterating the Mosaic law that did not redeem the people back then is not going to work this time either because it's an issue of the heart. And the very message of the prophets in Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel and other places is that I'm, there's going to be a new covenant. The covenant that you're under, and this is still old covenant stuff they're trying to do. It's, it's not going to work because it doesn't change your heart. But there's a new covenant coming. And Jesus Christ is going to be the one that's going to bring that reform. That's going to make Israel great again, if you will. And so for us, can I just encourage you? Like, hey, be involved in social issues. Vote. I, I get labeled a liberal when I talk about this kind of stuff. Just so you know, I, I almost all, all voted Republican in most places. I just didn't vote for our current president. But, um, but listen, my hope's not in our political system. Like, I will, I'll pay my taxes and I'll contribute into it and all those sorts of things. But Nehemiah alone should show us that whatever social reforms, and I pray that they're great that come down from the White House, whatever laws might change, whatever all those things might be, and I hope they're fantastic. But nothing will bring America to where it really needs to be until the gospel of Jesus Christ goes flying across our country. 
We don't need laws, we need gospel. And that's not Trump's job, that's our job. So may we be godly leaders like Nehemiah because we're going into the community and pointing people to what actually really will change lives. And that's Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? Father, I pray your blessing on these guys, Lord, as they go out of this place. I pray, Lord, that um, for all the words that were thrown around today, that the point is really simple. It just comes back to you. We need you, Jesus. So Jesus, may you continue to save, may you continue to change, may you continue to grow us. And I pray, God, that we would find our reliance on you and on your gospel. I pray, Lord, for our country. I pray for the changes. I pray for our leaders, for all those things, God. May they be godly leaders. May they be people of prayer. And in cases that are not, may you sovereignly turn their hearts. But our hope is not in them. Our hope is in you. And we wait something much more eternal, Lord. We wait that city without walls. We wait, Lord, for that kingdom to come. We wait for that king of kings for you, Jesus. And so may our hope be eternally on you. In Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. amen. Love you guys. We'll see you Sunday morning. God bless. And next week, Esther.